Welcome to our podcast here at Encounter Church in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We pray that as you listen to this message, you will not only be challenged, but changed. Our desire is to be a place where life starts, love happens, and purpose is revealed. If you're in our area, join us on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. and every first Wednesday at 6.45 p.m. For more information about our church, you can visit us at EncounterChurch.today or follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or Periscope. Just search eChurchBR. We invite you now to open your hearts to receive what God has for you. Here's today's message. excited about that. Unity, uh, as Michael just said there on the announcements, uh, Unity is the title of the series. And we are going to be looking over the next four weeks, we're going to be talking about unity in our minds, in our homes, uh, in our marriages, and in our church. And it's a really going to be a very, very powerful series. It's going to be a life-changing series. We're believing uh, in that completely. And again, we don't just uh, sit down and write these messages and write these series and put these series together just to kill 45 minutes of your Sunday morning. It really is uh, with the idea of impacting and changing lives through God's words. Because disunity, disunity is another way of saying divided. And we're going to learn what it means to be the opposite of that in our minds, marriages, homes, and church. We're going to be learning about the benefits of walking in unity and some of the ways that we can go about achieving it in those areas of our lives. Because why? Because the enemy wants us to be divided. The enemy wants division. And he's going to do anything he can to get us that way. Divided in ourselves, divided in our relationships, in our marriages, in our church. He wants to divide us because he knows the power of what it is to be united. He knows what power we have when we all come together as one. To quote God from Genesis eleven six, God says, there is nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Talking about the unity of mankind. And so we're really going to be teaching on that over these next four weeks about what it means to be united, what it means to be disunited, and the impact of both those ways. Because speaking the same language and being in unity sets us up for incredible things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we love you. We thank you for who you are. And we thank you, God, that you, your word, Lord God, is such a powerful powerful thing. It's a living, breathing thing. It's something which you've put together, not for us to read as a history book, but just so that we can learn and grow from it, so that we become better in you, Father God. We can know you more, become closer to you, Lord. And I pray, as I always do, that you would use me this morning, Lord God, that every word from my mouth would be yours and not mine, that I would get out of your way, Lord God, and that you would touch people's lives and touch people's hearts through the power of your word, Father God. I pray that people would leave here different to how they arrived. I pray right now, Lord, that those who are sitting here with a closed mind or a cold heart, that you would warm their hearts and open minds, Lord God, that they would just receive your word. They would just be just encouraged by it. They would be changed by it. They would be challenged by it, Lord God. And I pray, as I said, that lives will be changed forever in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen and amen. All right, everybody, so get yourself ready, strap yourself in. It's going to be a bumpy ride this morning. I hope you got your hard, toe-capped boots on uh, because I'm, I'm coming for you. All right, so it's, uh, it's going to be, it's going to be a word. I mean, it's, uh, it's a word I'm, I'm, I'm very, very excited to deliver. Um, have we got a security team this morning? 
Yeah, good. Um, it's going to be, as I said, it's going to be a challenge to you, but I want you to be hearing me this morning. I don't want you to just listen. I want you to hear. I want you to hear what it is uh, that I have to say to you this morning because, uh, and again, I don't say this lightly, I believe that this is a word that God's really dropped on me um, to, to share with you. Uh, and I know that's the case whenever it is that I'm uh, preparing the message and I go back and I go to change something because I don't quite like how it sits and then uh, I go back and I change it back again uh, to what it was in the first place. Um, because as I said, it's something that we do, don't, don't take lightly here. This is not me just putting together and throwing together, together a bunch of words and scriptures. It's something which has really been uh, pressed upon me. Uh, and this is really something which is uh, coming from a place where I, I have been concerned over the last long while, actually, uh, about really where is that life is going, where culture is going, where culture is, is headed. And I'm not so uh, concerned about where culture is headed because I know biblically that that's where culture is going. Uh, culture is going to go further and further away from God. My concern, my upset, and my, where, where my heart aches is that the culture is now, it's not just going in that direction, it's also sucking children of God in that direction also. Uh, and so this morning's message is really just as, as a, as a wake-up call, it really is, just to help you uh, just to start recognizing some things, okay? We're talking about unity in the mind this morning, unity in the mind. What am I talking about that? Well, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground here this morning about how powerful your mind is, how powerful our minds are. And I'm excited, as I said, to share this message with you, but the mind is an incredibly powerful thing. And we're going to look today at how we need to be controlling that power, how we need to be harnessing that power and using that power to shape our lives for the better. So what does unity actually mean? Unity can be used in lots of different ways to describe lots of different things. It's the title of our, uh, of our series this month. So I'm going to go right up front and, and define it because you know how I like my definitions. So definition of unity is this one, the state of being one. Oneness. Uh, there's a real loud buzz up here somewhere. Uh, number two, absence of diversity. So it means the absence of, uh, of diversity. It, it means that there is no diversity. It means that we are connected and united. We are unvaried or uniform character. And it means also this oneness of mind, feeling, thanks guys, uh, as among a number of persons. So in other words, unity would imply that if there are two people there, they are having the same feeling. They are thinking the same things. There is concord. Uh, there is harmony or agreement. And that's really the definition that we're going to be looking at this morning. And I'm going to be using this definition here about the concord, the harmony, or agreement. I'm talking about the unity of your mind with God's. The unity of your mind with God's is what we're going to be really touching on here. Each of those definitions, though, of the word unity there, they all give us very much, much a sense of order, of solidity, of strength, of agreement. And those are all things that we'd like to be experiencing in our minds and in our relationship with God. How amazing would it be to have a sense of having our minds in total agreement with God's mind? To have that singularity, that oneness with God. Can you imagine the confidence that that would give you? The assuredness about everything that we did. It would give us complete stability in our lives. 
And I know that's true because the Bible tells us about the opposite. James 1.8 says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So the opposite of unity, of oneness, of having a single mind would be to be double-minded. And it says a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Raise your hand for me now if you have a desire to be unstable in all of your ways. Exactly. That's exactly right. So we have to do all we can to not be double-minded, correct? So as I've already said, the mind, powerful, powerful thing. You know, the human brain has over 100 billion neurons or nerve cells in it. And each of those neurons is connected to up to another 10,000 neurons. And they're all sending signals to each other through 1,000 trillion synaptic connections. The human mind's memory capacity is anything up to 1,000 terabytes. And for all you computer nerds out there, you know what I'm talking about. For those that you are not, let me just put that into context for you. If you take the whole of the 19 million volumes in the U.S. Library of Congress, 19 million volumes, all of them together would take up 10 terabytes of space. Your mind has 1,000 terabytes of space. Now, our minds are unquestionably the most powerful computer on the face of the planet. And while we've been able to discover information about an endless number of things, the human mind and the brain and how it all actually works is still one of the biggest unanswered questions that exists. So with that capacity, with that power, it makes sense that in the vast majority of us, our minds have a massive untapped potential. But more important than the untapped potential is what we're doing with the mind power that we are using. I don't care how much extra memory space you have that's not being used. What I care about is the memory space that you are using, the mind power that you are using. What are we using that mind power for? What are we achieving with the mind power that we're using? What are we sowing into our own lives and the lives of others with our minds each and every day. What is it that we're thinking about? What are we dwelling on? What are we learning? What is it that we're absorbing? What direction are we taking our mind in? Or how about this? What direction is our mind taking us? It's powerful. What do I mean? I've said it already. Our mind is a powerful thing. We have to be aware of that power. And we have to make sure it doesn't take us off where we don't need to be going. Anybody like horses here? I'm not, a, I'm not a, sorry, Miss Judy, I'm about to offend you. I'm not a horse fan. I'm not a horse fan. I'm nervous. Now, listen to me. Listen to me. See, I'm already on the back foot. I'm only on page two. Taxi. So, horses, they are beautiful creatures, and I love to admire them at a distance. At a distance, yeah. Underline at a distance. They, 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 are, they make me nervous when I'm up close and personal to them. And there's, and there's reasons for this. You know, with, there are the reasons that, that, that go back a while. We, we as a family, we never used to go uh, very many places. My dad used to work abroad, so we never used to go very many places as a family. And I remember, I remember two trips, one of which has nothing at all to do with this message, so I'm not going to bore you with the details on there. Um, but I'll just give you a summary. Don't ever ask me to play Monopoly. 
Okay, there you go. There's a teaser. There's a teaser for you. Um, and the second trip that I remember was this. I don't remember where it was. I remember being a little kid. And uh, we were there. And I don't know if you've ever seen, like, English TV programs, some of the detective programs. I know, I know that Renee and Rena are huge fans of this. But um, some of the English telly uh, that you might watch on PBS, okay, um, you'll see some of the programs on there and they have like what, what we call like little, little um, carnivals or fates is what we call them in England. Uh, and it's like, you know, your, your, your typical archetypal village green um, with your people putting up little tents and you have like the knock the coconuts off the... Are you with me on this kind of thing? So, uh, a fair, a fair, there you go, that kind of a deal, all right? So, we were visiting one of those, and I don't remember ever visiting another one before or since, uh, but we were visiting that one there, and this was like, this was like, the, there was a big bowl in the, in the ground, it was like, a, um, it was almost like an emptied lake, I, I don't know how it got there, but that's what it was, it was just a big, massively deep bowl, and... Um, us English people are genius. So what we did was we actually, they, they, they crafted up this massive like ramp thing. And um, people uh, spent however long they spent. I mean, some of these people were really serious about what they were doing. A long time making wings uh, so they could fly. And, um, and so, they're run, so they're running along this ramp and launching off this ramp with nothing but like a however many feet drop, a lot of feet drop. Like, uh, what are you doing, feet drop, um, with these wings? And surprisingly, nobody flew, surprisingly. Um, so anyway, so that's all, that's all just setting the scene here. Now, at the top of this, uh, of this dome thing, on the bank, there was a horse. And this horse was tied to a post on a very, very, very long rope. So, the first person is running with all of his garb on and his costume and everything else and his big letter on his chest because he was convinced, I mean, he was convinced he was going to fly. So, he runs and he jumps off the ramp and, of course, doesn't fly. And so, as he's running down the ramp, all of the crowd are going, ooh, like you do, right? And he launches and everyone goes, uh-oh. <laughs> and in the applause that followed, um, this guy plummeting to obvious pain, the horse got spooked. So the horse starts running randomly. It runs down the slope. It runs back up the slope. And my mum is standing right where the rope went round. Horse goes up the bank. Rope comes like this. Her legs are taken away. And she is rope burn all the way up her side of her leg. And I'm just a little kid. And I'm just watching all this happen. I killed the mood. <laughs> She's fine, by the way. It was just a minor injury, nothing major. Thank you. Um, so, um, someone remind me not to tell that story in the second service. So, anyway, so what's my point? My point is this. This horse, they thought being chained on a rope was going to make this horse not do what horses do. But this horse, the average horse, average horse, weighs 1,000 pounds. So you have a thousand pounds of something, of flesh and bone and muscle, with its own mind, with its own brain. I don't like things that are a thousand pounds in weight and muscle that have their own minds. 
And so to me, anybody who gets on, any 200-pound person getting on a 1,000-pound thing with its own mind, you're crazy. You are crazy. So the point I'm making is this. These horses have so much power that's locked into them. When you're riding that horse, you are just trying to keep control of that horse. And you might, have good, you might be a very, very good rider of horses. You may be, have complete control all of the time, and you may never have had a bad incident. But, you know, I wonder if right in the back of your mind sometimes you're thinking this thing could do its own thing. And I've seen it happen. I've witnessed it happen. So all of that story, what's the point I'm trying to make to you? The point is this. If your mind is like that horse. Sometimes you might think that you're in complete control of it. But every now and again, it's going to go off somewhere else. It's going to shoot in a direction that you're not expecting it to go. And if we're not careful, it can run down a slope and up a slope and take your legs away. Is how your mind can go. We need to lead our mind, not have our mind lead us. So where do we need to lead it to? Well, we need to lead it to where God wants it to be. Jesus was asked by a Sadducee lawyer. He said, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And then Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven tells us Jesus' answer. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He said all your mind. He didn't say some of your mind. He didn't say not part of your mind on a Sunday morning. He said all of your mind, not a fraction of it, when you need something from him. All of your mind. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, every Christian would agree that a man's spiritual health is exactly proportional to his love for God. The more you love God, the more spiritually healthy you are. We are at our strongest and healthiest spiritually when our minds and our, are in line with God's. And our spiritual health is the most important factor of our health because we are spiritual beings. You are a spiritual being being carried around in a fleshly case. That's effectively summing you up. Okay, Whether you're a Christian or not, that's who you are. But our spirits now are obviously connected in with Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit within us. But you are a spiritual being. So your spiritual well-being, your spiritual health is the most important part of your overall well-being. So how do we steer our minds in the right direction? How do we get our minds in line with God's? Well, let me tell you firstly what we shouldn't do. If we're trying to get in our mind in line with God's, we should not try and make God's mind line up with ours. We shouldn't try and have his thoughts fit in with our thoughts. We shouldn't have his thoughts try to make them comply with our thoughts. We shouldn't have God's thoughts and try and make them subject to our thoughts. You know, we're good at that. We have our thought processes. We have our own understandings understandings of what we think it is that God wants and what it is that God thinks. We have our own plans and desires and wants for our life and lifestyle, and they're not all bad things. But we will pick and choose what God thinks to fit in with what we think. We will take some of what he says about some things. We'll make them fit into what we want him to be saying. We'll force what his words, limited words, we'll take some of what he's saying, and we're going to force them into the rules and parameters that we have for our lives And then 
when we've done that, we'll proudly profess that we're in line with him. I'm in line with God because this, because God says this. Well, God does say that, but that's half a sentence of half a verse that he's speaking right there. Our thoughts and desires need to be in line. Our minds are powerful. Our minds have the ability to take things and squeeze them and shape them and take this piece of truth, take this pointy piece off, smooth off this sharp corner here, this uncomfortable lumpy part, I'm going to take that away as well. And then I'm going to fit it into this neat little hole in our thought process and say that my mind is in tune with God. Your mind is powerful, but it's not as powerful as God's. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to stop trying to fit God's mind and thoughts into ours. His mind created your mind. His thoughts know every one of your thoughts. We need to bring our thoughts in line with his thoughts. I need to take my teensy, tiny, insignificantly powerful mind and humbly have his absorb it. Absorb it. My powerful mind, I want him to absorb it. Let's go back to the horse. You're on your horse. Does anybody know the collective noun for horses? Trivia quiz. It's a harass. A harass of horses. Unless they're all colts, in which case it's a rag. If you leave here knowing nothing more about the word of God. <laughs> now, if you're, anybody, if you're in a trivia quiz and get asked about the collective noun for horses, you, you're welcome. A harass. So, let's get back on track. I went off on my horse there, didn't I? So you're on your horse. You're on this powerful horse, 1,000 pounds of muscle. And what it is that you need to do, this thing here can go off in this direction, go off in that direction. What I want want you to imagine is this. This horse, this is your mind. I want you to imagine the biggest harass of horses that you have ever, ever seen. You've seen the Western movies and you've seen them all running wild across. And they're all in that massive group. And they change direction, but they all stay together. And here's what I want you to imagine. I want you to imagine that this massive, bigger than you've ever thought about before, number of horses all packed tightly together. I want you to think of that. That's God's mind. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of your horse. And I want you to imagine taking your horse, steering your horse, coming to the harass, coming to the edge of the harass, forcing your way through, and having your horse slap bang in the middle of this group of horses. Because why? Because you know what you can do then? You can take your hand off the reins. Because your horse is going to be going wherever that harass goes. Wherever God's mind goes, your mind will go. What direction that takes, you will take. I can't think all of the thoughts that God can think. But I can have my thoughts be like his thoughts. 
I can't do the things that God can do, but I can make sure the things that I do are like the things that he does. His ways are higher than my ways, but I can make sure that my ways are like his ways. But I can't have those things happen unless I decide that I'm going to make those things happen. My mind thinks my thoughts, and my thoughts lead to my desires, and my desires, they lead to my actions, and my actions, they lead to my outcomes. If I want to be living in God's will, I can't do that if I'm thinking thoughts outside of his will. But you have to decide. It's for me to decide what I do with my mind, and it's up to you to decide what you do with yours. You are not going to just drift into your mind being in line with God's mind. Because everything in you and everything around you is pulling you in the opposite direction. And that is the truth. That's biblical truth. You have a sin nature. You have a selfish nature. You have a nature that desires pleasure and self-gratification. And you live in a culture that doesn't only say that's okay. It's encouraging you to do what you want to do. Because you want to do it. The culture today is making rules that say there are no rules. That whatever you say should go. That God's word is old-fashioned. It's out of date and it's of no importance in today's society. Culture is saying this, you do you, boo. You do you, boo. That's what culture is saying. Culture is saying, YOLO. YOLO, you only live once, and that's true. You do, eternally. Eternally. You're living once eternally. This right here is a blip. But this blip right here can do a whole lot of determining where you spend the rest of it. Where you spend the rest of it. Culture is telling you, do what you want. God is telling you. Don't be doing what you want. Don't be doing what you want. Because there's only one place that that will lead to. Don't be doing what you want. You have to choose. You're going to have to have your mind in line with God or in line with the world. Because you can't do both. You cannot do both. So how do we get our minds in line with God's? How can we have our thoughts in line with His and live out His will? I'm going to give you four D's that we need to do with our mind to help us to move and stay in the right direction. Firstly, defend. You need to be aware that your mind is going to be under attack. And you need to defend yourself against that. The enemy is going to mess with you in any which way that he can. And he's going to have you thinking all sorts of thoughts before you know it. He's going to have you thinking things about God. He's going to have you thinking things about the people around you. Most importantly, he's going to have you thinking thoughts about you. He's going to crush your spirit. He's going to attack your confidence. He's going to undermine everything that it is that you believe in. He's going to have you anxious. He's going to have you stressed out. He's going to have you distracted. He's going to have you super busy. He's going to have your mind bombarded with all sorts of garbage from left, right, and center. He's going to be putting things on TV that weren't there 15 years ago. 
He's going to be putting things on the stereo systems that weren't there 15 years ago. He's going to be putting apps on your phone that hide all of the other apps that you're going into. He's going to mess with you any way that he can. And you need to be aware of it. Your thoughts are going to steer your actions, so you need to be alert. 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The other thing the enemy is going to try and do is isolate you and make you think that what you're thinking is, is nobody else is thinking the same thing. Everybody's thinking the same thing. We're all under attack. We're all under attack. Newsflash, we're all under attack. He's going to mess with you any which way that he can. And one of the easiest ways that he can do it is to isolate you. He can make you feel ashamed that you're feeling the feelings that you are feeling. He can make you feel ashamed that you're thinking the thoughts that you are thinking. You can be getting stressed about how stressed you are. Upset about how upset you are. Depressed about how depressed you are. He will be messing with you. Now, that's not lightening anything. Nothing I've said makes you feel any better. doesn't make it go away. It doesn't mean, oh, yeah, I recognize that, therefore it's not there. I go to the doctor's next week and get told I'm cancer, and I walk out of the doctor's office and I say, I haven't got cancer. You know what? I've got cancer. I'm just saying I don't have cancer. Now, can I pray and, 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 and believe that God can move? Yes, I can do all of that. But denying it's, not, denying it's there doesn't make it not there. I preached about this on Friday at Crossroads. So I'm not going there now. You'll have to get the CD. But what I'm saying to you is this. We can get so consumed in our minds, by our minds, about our minds. We have to be on guard we have to be on guard and recognize when it's happening. Let me tell you this in case you did not know. The devil is real. His desire to de- de- derail you is real. His desire to mislead you and have you make unwise and ungodly choices is real. And I'm not speaking dramatic pastor here. Good versus evil. I'm talking reality. Good versus evil. As real as your God is to you, The devil is that real. If you don't believe in God, then great, you don't believe in the devil. But you cannot believe in God and not believe in the devil. You can have faith in God, you can't have faith in the devil, but you can believe that God is real. And as real as God is to you, actually, scratch that. It doesn't matter how real God is to you. God is real. And the devil is that real. He's the same real. You don't need to be afraid of the devil. Don't be afraid of the devil, but you need to be very afraid of what he wants to do to you. Be aware, be alert. Be watchful and protect yourself against his plans and his schemes. In Ephesians uh, chapter 6, 11 through 13, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is a thing. It's a thing, and it's going on around you. It's going on in you. It's happening. 
It's real. Be aware of it. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm. Put on the armor of God. Now, is it going to protect you against every, every attack? No, the attacks are still going to come. But let me tell you this, it makes you aware. When you're aware of a danger, then you are subconsciously even, you know that you're aware. So it's not going to take you by surprise when it happens. You need to be aware. You know, every single day, every single day, before I leave my house or before anybody leaves our house, we come together as a family, myself, Molly, Kobe, and Elijah. We come and stand in a circle and hold hands in our living room every single morning, and we pray. And we pray for whatever it is that we want to pray for. We pray for our intuitive prayers. We pray for needs. We pray for our family. We pray for protection around. We pray for all of the things that you would think that we would pray for. And then when we're finished praying, Elijah leads us. And we stand firm in the, en- stand firm in the Lord against the enemy. And we stand there, and Elijah says, he does this. And we put on the helmet of salvation. And then he does this. And we put it on our belt of truth. And then he does this. And we put it on our boots of peace. And then he does this. And we're putting on our breastplate of righteousness. And then he does this. And we're holding up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he does this. And we have the shield of faith. And then we stand there in a circle and we all say, and we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. We stand firm in you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not saying any of that to impress you because I don't care if you're impressed or not. Seriously. I don't say any of that to be an example to you as your pastor. Nope. I do that because my family needs it. I do that because I need it. Because you know Why? Because I know that it's symbolic what it is that we're doing. I'm not really taking an actual piece of you know, metal and sticking it on my head. Because that, quite frankly, is useless against the devil anyway, right? But it's symbolic. And what does it do? It means that when I walk out of my door and I leave my family in my house, I know that I'm covered. I know that I am reminded that, you know what, I'm stepping out of this household today and I better be aware. I better be alert. Because I don't know what I'm walking into. But I know that the enemy is going to be after me. I know he's going to be after me. So all it does is it heightens our awareness. It heightens our alertness. But it also means that I have a comfort in the knowledge that not just me, but my whole family. We stand firm in God. We stand firm and we put on his armor. So I encourage you, if you don't go through that every day, don't go through that every day. But just be aware every day. Be alert every day. And know this, the devil is going to mess with your mind. So the next thing we need to do is this. After we've defended, we need to what? We need to discern. We need to discern. Now, the definition of the word discern is to perceive by the sight or some other sense or by the intellect. To see, to recognize, to distinguish mentally, to recognize as distinct or different. And get this one, discriminate. Discriminate. We need to see and recognize what it is that God is saying to us. What it is that God thinks about things. We need to discriminate between what's truth and what's not. Look at this appeal that Paul makes. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual 
worship. Us sacrificing our lives to him is our spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And let me tell you this, you need to listen to that scripture, and I'll tell you for why. Christy had no idea what I was preaching about this morning, and she's standing up here talking about renewing your mind and using that scripture right there. I picked up my notes and turned around and showed Roxanne. She's stealing my notes. She's stealing my notes. <laughs> we need to do this very thing. We need to be transforming and renewing our mind. We need to be transformed. We need to be transformed. And it's a continual process by the renewal of our minds. We can't think like we used to think and expect to have different results. We can't think like we used to think and expect to bear different fruits. By renewing our mind, we can think differently. And we can learn to discern what is the will of God. What does that mean in simple, day-to-day, practical terms? It means this, that by renewing our minds, setting our mind in line with God's, we will see more clearly what it is that God actually desires. What's God, what God's will for our lives actually is. What God actually agrees with and what he doesn't. And what it is that God actually loves and what he actually hates. If my desire is to truly have my mind in line with God's, it will lead me to see clearly what is the truth and what is not. Because the enemy wants you to not see God's truth. He wants to muddy the waters. He wants you to listen when culture tells you what God actually means in this scripture or that scripture or this thing that God says that doesn't apply anymore because of this, that, or the other. Listen, I trust God. I do not trust culture. I need to use discernment to recognize what is actually true. Look at this. What culture says is true may or may not be. What God says is true is. I'm not saying that culture lies all of the time. I'm not saying everything culture tells you is incorrect or wrong or unbiblical. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to you there is a distinct possibility that what you're being told by culture is not true. I am telling you quite clearly everything God says to you is truth. Everything is truth. So we're taking steps to defend the mind. We're then going to discern what is true and what is not. What do we need to do next? Decide. Decide. I've said this already today. We need to decide. You need to decide. Once you've discerned what's truth and what's not, are you going to live out that truth or not? And that's up to you. The same as it's up to me. If I'm studying and I'm learning what God's truth is, that's just knowledge. That's just information. What I do with that information or don't do with that information is my choice. I can follow it or I can not follow it. But I can never deny what's truth. If I know God's truth and choose not to do it, well, okay. I have free will. It's my choice to do. I can not do what it is that I know. But I can't ever say, oh, well, God says this is okay. Because I know the truth. I can go against the truth, 
do the opposite of the truth. I can do whatever it is I want. And you know what? So can you. You can learn the truth and go do something completely different. Your choice. Are you going to live out that truth though or are you not? I'm not talking about leading a perfect life because you will not ever do that. You will not ever do that. And anybody that expects you to do that is wrong or asks you to do that is wrong or tells you it's possible. They're so wrong. You will not lead a perfect life. But I am talking about you doing your best to have your mind and action, actions in line with God's. You have free will. You have the ability to choose whether to do right or wrong once you've discerned which is which. Your kids, you know, what you're doing as you're raising your children is to basically sometimes teach them what's right and what's wrong. Sometimes you have to do that. But, you know, biblically, again, part of the fact that we know God is real is because we're born with conscience. You can have somebody that you have never told what is right and what is wrong, but they have a sense when they're doing something wrong. Because they're moved by the Spirit. They have, they are, they have that consciousness that's within them. It's one of the indicators that God is real. The same as nature is an indicator. And again, don't get me off on that. Who asked me that question? No. But you are, you, your conscience that's inside of you, you can discern what is right and what's wrong. But there are some things where you might have a question. Well, you know, someone told me this is okay, biblically. Someone told me that God said that that's all right. Let me check. Oh, hang on a second. So now you know, right? Now you know right and wrong. So now you can go out and you can choose what's right and what's wrong. When your kids know what's right and what's wrong, and you say that's right and that's wrong, do everything right, life's going to be peachy. Do anything wrong that you know you shouldn't have been doing, life's not quite so peachy for a short period of time. Something's going to happen, there's going to be consequence. So that next time you have that choice to make, you're going to make, because your flesh will sometimes want to do this. Kids will want to do that. You, you will want it. Why? Because you are a sinner. That's why. You're born with a sin nature. You will automatically, this is your default. You don't have to think twice about doing something wrong. You have to consciously think that you're not going to do that wrong, that you're going to do the right thing. And I'm talking about me. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about our kids. They are go- but so what we have to do is to think about what the consequences are going to be. My kids need to know that they can choose. They have, the, they have free will. It's up to you what you do, son. But if you choose that, this is what's going to happen. So I need to make that, whatever it is that's going to happen, hard enough, painful enough, not physically, right? I'm talking about that they think twice about doing this. Until they get to that place where they, instead of thinking about, well, if I do this wrong, this bad thing is going to happen. What we're trying to do is to encourage them and teach them and nurture them and grow them so that they don't think, if I do this bad thing, this is going to happen. They're going to be thinking, I want to do the right thing to be pleasing to daddy. I want to do the right thing to be pleasing to mummy. I want to do the right thing. Eventually, I do the right thing because why? Because it's the right thing to do. That's what we're in. And this, you're in the same boat. Do you, do you, who here actually believes that I never, ever, ever, as a pastor, have a temptation to do something bad? Thank God for that. Phew, that's a relief. So you all understand that I'm tempted sometimes to do bad things. Okay, I am. Now before I knew Christ, when I was tempted to do bad things, I went did them. (laughs) Several times over. And if they were really bad and really fun, I would keep doing, keep doing, keep doing. 
Because I had no real reason. I sensed inside of me that I was not doing the right thing. But you know what? How many times I have thought in my mind, this is not hurting anybody. Oh, my gosh. Seriously. Probably a million. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. I'm just, whoa. It's making my head spin just thinking about all the times that I've said that to myself. I'm not hurting anyone. But it was not the right thing to be doing. But now when there's any temptation to do something which is not, you know, my thought process now is, I don't have to go through that. If I do that, the consequences potentially are this, that, or the other. Now I have to think, you know, that is going to displease God. That's where I'm at now. And that's not because I'm so holy roly. It's because I spent 40 years not saved. Then I got chosen and saved. And so, you know what? I've had my fun. I've had all of the bad stuff. I don't need that stuff. I don't need it at all. And God, God chose me. God selected me. God did all those things. God saved me. God gave me the life that I have right now. And it's not a case of if I do something bad, I'll be putting that in jeopardy. You know what? Potentially I would be, depending on what it was. Right? That's not the reason, though. It's quite simply this. I want to please my God. I want to please my God. I want to please my dad, my heavenly father. I want him to be pleased with me and proud of me. That's my motivation. But that comes over time from you knowing. But I can't make those choices if I don't know what's right or wrong, can I? But once I know what's right and wrong, I choose. So I'm telling you all about my choices because I don't know what your choices are. But I'm telling you, you have free will to make the decisions that you want as well. You have the ability to choose whether you do right or wrong once you've discerned what right is and what wrong is. But know this. You cannot both fully follow God and fully follow the world. Now you might be able to walk with one foot in each camp for a little while, but I tell you, the culture camp is getting further and further away from God. So if you've got one foot here in God's camp and one foot here in culture's camp, and that's where you're at right now, you need to make your mind up quick because it's going to get very, very uncomfortable. I'm not going any further than that. I'll pull a hamstring. I am 50 now, you know. Don't want to break a hip or anything. <laughs> God's desire or yours? That's your choice sometimes. God's desire or yours? I have to choose sometimes. Well, I really want that. I really would like to do that. But is that God's desire for me? I have to choose between mine and his Romans 8, 5 and 8. For those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If I choose to live life in the Spirit, my life will look different to if I have chosen to live life in the flesh. What I say I believe is irrelevant. What I choose to live isn't. What I live in will bear fruit one way or the other. And my life will display the choices I have made. I can say I believe as much as I would like to say I believe. But how much I say it is irrelevant. My life will show just how much I truly do. 
In his letter to the Galatians, Paul speaks of the fruit of the Spirit, what it is that we'll see in and from our lives if we desire to have our minds and desires fall in line with God's. He says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now again, if you are a new Christian or a young Christian or a a Christian that doesn't know the word particularly well, if you've been taught incorrectly, then you may think that once you're saved, then suddenly you are going to have no more desires of the flesh. You're going to have no more temptation come your way. Wrong. That's wrong. When it talks here about the crucifixion of the flesh, what it's talking about is this. It's talking about what it is that I've just spoken about. It's about being at that crossroads, being at that point where I can choose to go this direction or that direction. It means that when I'm living in the Spirit, I'm going to still have that crossroads there. I'm still going to have those choices come up in front of me. A lot of times there's going to be choices there that weren't there before because before I didn't have to think about it. I just went down the wrong road. Now I've got another road to choose. So there's more choices for me to make. There's more tough decisions for me to make. There's more temptations for me to have to deal with. But if I'm living in the Spirit, I'm going to come here, and when I've got that choice to make, that's when I'm going to crucify my flesh. I'm going to say, you know what? I've got a choice here. 15 minutes of pleasure, and then however much time of feeling bad about it, possible consequences, and laying my head down on the pillow and having to pray to God and ask him, him for forgiveness and feeling bad about letting God down. Or I can say, 15 minutes, it ain't worth it. Love you, Lord. Love you, Lord. That's what crucifying the flesh is talking about. So it's not a one-stop shop, one-time deal. It's continual, and that's the whole thing I always try and press upon people when I'm talking about the Christian life. It takes work. It takes you having to make tough choices. It takes you falling flat on your face and getting back up and trying again and doing the best that you can do. That's my, the, the best description I have and the times I use that phrase in here or in my house when I'm talking to the family. You know what? We're all just going about our lives trying to do the best that we can do. That's the reality of it all and we're all going to make mistakes. But if I choose to do wrong, That's not a mistake. It might turn out to have been a mistake to make that choice. You understand what I'm saying? But it's a conscious choice. That's when we are to crucify the flesh. So these are the things that a life in the Spirit are going to show, that love, joy, peace, patience, etc. The verse there starts with the word but, right? But the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason that but is there is because Paul has just spoken in the verses directly, about the things that are the works of the flesh. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I'm not going to admit to any of you how many on that list I've partook in before I was saved. But I can tell you my life looks completely different now. Because of the choices I'm making. Because of where I have my mind. Because my mind, I want my mind in unity with God's mind. I want it to be in that place, in the right place. 
Look how clearly the difference between flesh and spirit is put before these descriptions. Galatians 5.17, that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. They are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What does that mean? It means that the spirit inside of you, is, it can't handle it. He's going to allow you to go do what it is that you want to do, but he's going to make you feel funny on the inside. When you're feeling that you've done something bad and you feel that twisted, snotted stomach inside of you, that's the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to turn a blind eye. The Holy Spirit's not going to say, oh, go on then, just this once. The Holy Spirit is going to be, what are you doing? What, what, uh, hello, hello. That's what the Holy Spirit is going to be doing. The more tuned into you are to the Spirit, if He whispers, that's how it's going to sound. Hello? That's how it's going to sound. But you know what we do is the more times that we choose the flesh and we choose the flesh, suddenly the Spirit sounds like this. Hello? Hello? Low enough we can ignore Him. Trust me, He's there. Trust me, He's shouting. Trust me, He wants you to make the right choices. You have the power of choice. God gave you free will. I've heard people say that he did that because he loves you so much, and that might be true. But you know what? I think that's only half the story. I know enough about God's Word to know that he loves you so much that he gave you free will, and his heart breaks when you use it unwisely. He loves you enough that he gave you free will, but he loves you so much that his heart breaks when you use it unwisely. So lastly, Once we've decided to have a mind in line with God's, what do we need to do with it? We need to direct it. We need to direct our mind. We need to guide it. We need to steer it. We need to get a tight grip on those reins and point the horse in the right direction. And when our mind starts to veer off the path, we need to pull it back on track. Even after the defending and the discerning and the deciding, the temptations are still going to come. Wrong thoughts will still come. And we need to make sure that that's not where we allow our minds to dwell. This verse is a powerful guide for us. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's what we need to set our minds on those things. We need to think bigger. We need to think eternal. We need to think about what it is that we're doing in relation to our eternal life and what it is that God's thoughts would be about a situation. If we think big and if we think eternal, it makes our own thoughts and desires less attractive and less important. If, I, if I'm tempted to do something, you know, I've, I've done this, gone through this process before as well. If I've been tempted to do something that I know I shouldn't be doing, I imagine myself doing that thing, and whilst I'm doing that thing, saying, Jesus, 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 Jesus. And the thought, just the thought of me doing that thing while using Jesus' name makes me want to vomit. Because I know what Jesus did for me. I know what Jesus did for me. This is me talking to you now. I'm not talking to you as a pastor. I'm talking to you as Pete. That's what, what I have done in the past. So now I, that doesn't even come in my brain. My, my mind is now conditioned. If I know right from wrong, I'm not even, I don't even think about going there. Because how could I when I know and fully understand what it is that Jesus Christ did for me? 
How could I? How could I? But that's me. That's not you. We've got to think big and we've got to think eternal. Because as I said, if we do that, it lifts us above our flesh. It lifts us above our temptations and what it is that we want to do. We need to direct where our mind goes because it's always going somewhere. Your mind is always going somewhere. Our minds are always on something. And if your mind is on something, it's almost impossible to simply stop thinking about that thing and think about nothing. At least it is for me. I can't imagine ever thinking about nothing. Right? There's always something to be thinking about, some, some things to be, to be thought about. So instead, what do we do? You know, if, if, you're, if you're on this horse and this horse has bolted, you aren't suddenly going to be able to stop that horse. But if your horse is heading towards a cliff, right, you're going to find some superhuman strength in you to steer that horse to a different direction. The horse is still going at 1,000 miles an hour. You still might not be completely in control, but at least you're not going off the cliff. So you need to redirect your mind. When your mind is somewhere it doesn't need to be, or even on the way there, direct it somewhere else instead. Let me give you the last piece of advice from Paul. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You can come back, band.